It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of Radio.com Sports. Welcome to the Big Time Baseball Podcast, a Radio.com Sports original. I'm Tony Gwynn Jr. alongside MLB insider John Heyman. You can follow me at Tony Gwynn Jr. on Twitter, and John is at John Heyman. And you can follow Radio.com Sports on Twitter at RDC Sports. You can find and subscribe to this show each week on the Radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. On today's show, obviously, since the last time we were able to get together, uh, a lot has gone on in the world. Uh, The pandemic has really... um, take it over not only the United States, but the entire world and, and, and baseball has become secondary, but John and I are going to do our best to, to give you at least 30, 40 minutes to, to get your mind off of that. And um, uh, hopefully we can help everybody kind of uh, have some peace for just 30 to 40 minutes uh, for these podcasts. Today's show will have Dave Stewart, former GM, former pitcher, uh, now an agent, uh, and, and we're going to also uh, go through some of the storylines that are uh, available uh, around Major League Baseball. John, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. It's always a pleasure, Tony. It's a tough time in, in this country. It's going to be a pleasure to have uh, Stu on. And as we all know, uh, who follow baseball, he's been through a rather harrowing experience having his own test uh, yeah. for the coronavirus. And uh, thankfully, uh, he was negative. Uh, still feels a little under the weather, but uh, he'll give us a some great uh, baseball stories and he'll tell us what that was like as well. So, um, you know, there's not uh, a lot of great stuff going on in the world, but uh, we're going to do our best to talk about baseball and to tell people about uh, a little bit about the uh, coronavirus testing through Stu. Yeah. Let's, let's jump right into some of the baseball news. Uh, Since uh, baseball, major league baseball has been shut down. There's been, Seemingly a few guys who are have elected to have Tommy John surgery. One of those guys, most recently, uh, Noah Syndergaard, uh, which, you know, in, in, in a time like this where hospitals uh, are, are pretty flooded, it seems uh, a little weird to be having a, a surgery, but it's deemed essential. Uh, how Talk about how big of a blow this could be to the Mets if we were to get started to this, this, this next couple months. But also, um, where, where you fall with him having this surgery at this time? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a, a huge blow for the Mets. Uh, their number two starter and an extreme talent to people see as the potential of being a real a real ace um, along with DeGrom. So uh, it's a big blow to the team. It's a, it's a big blow to him. And, yeah, he's having the surgery uh, this week. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing to have the surgery. Uh, our governor here in Florida, uh, DeSantis, had just banned elective non-essential surgeries 
but he left it up to the doctors to decide what is a, an, ass- an essential surgery. And, uh, of course, the Mets team doctor, uh, Dr. Olchek, will be performing the surgery. And, uh, you know, obviously this is a very important surgery for Noah and, and his career uh, to not delay this and to be able to get back uh, for 2021. It's certainly a, a debate as to whether it is essential. Um, I've heard from uh, doctors involved in this case that uh, he has a, an acute tear of the UCL and it's uh, compressing on his nerve, not to say he's in pain now, but uh, you know, normally we don't hear how exactly how bad the tear is, but uh, now I don't know whether they're building their case to have the surgery, but uh, we're now hearing that it is a bad tear. Um, you know, fortunately it's Florida, not New York. Uh, yeah, yeah. The hospitals are not overcrowded at this moment. It's best to get it done quickly if you're going to do it. And uh, he's having it right away. Um, so it, looking at that, that's that's a positive. I do understand uh, the, the complaints, though, because uh, we're in a yeah. very, very tough time in this country. And the total focus is on uh, making sure all of the coronavirus patients get the proper care. Um, as I said, he's in Florida, yeah. not New York. If it was New York, I would say, my God, what are they doing? But, uh, you know, I'm in Florida. It's it's not great here, but uh, it's not like New York right now. So uh, we're going to do it quickly. And, uh, you know, uh, and I, as I said, I do understand the complaints, but it's going to get I, done. Thank you for clarifying that, because I think a lot of people will hear Noah Syndergaard, know he's a New York Met, and assume that that surgery is taking place in New York, which we all know is really the epicenter right now in the United States for uh, the the COVID-19. And with with it not being as impacted or impacted that much in in Florida, you could could at least understand uh, the surgery going through at this point. Speaking of the the, the coronavirus, what's the latest in terms of MLB uh, and, and how they're handling and moving forward? Yeah, it seems lately the the tenor of the negotiations have, has been more positive. So I think there's a little bit better feeling on this on this part of both sides that they're going to be able to get something done. They may not get all the issues done. The service time, uh, if the worst case scenario happens in the game and the season is canceled, um, the service time is a is a big issue. The, the player side would still like to have a year service time, and uh, the uh, MLB. Uh, you know, it feels like if there's no season, how do you give any service time? Uh, there may have to be some kind of compromise. I think uh, Manfred has a little bit of an upper hand in the negotiations generally uh, because the President Trump uh, declared a national emergency and technically uh, Commissioner Manfred uh, can do as he pleases, but he does need to get along with the players and he does need to do what's fair. It does seem like they are negotiating both sides in good faith to get this done, but that's issue may have to be deferred for a while. They've made progress on other major issues. It, fe- it feels like, it seems like the salaries will be done on a prorated basis. So if they play half a season, which is a possibility, um, and it's only 80 games, uh, the players will get half their salary. And uh, that seems reasonable to me. That's kind of what I'm hearing yeah. now. Uh, there are other issues that are being discussed. Both sides want to get in as many games as possible. And I think there'll be uh, once the season gets going, there's going to be double headers and there's going to be expanded rosters to accommodate that. Certainly at the beginning of the year, uh, there'll be expanded rosters because the pitchers are not going to be able to be built up. They're not going to have a six week spring training. Not sure how long it's going to be. My guess would be 
three weeks or perhaps even a little bit less. So we'll see probably expanded rosters. As far as when the season's starting, we I, it feels like June 1st is is optimistic or very best optimistic. Case, best case scenario. If everything goes yeah. perfectly June 1st, but more realistic and still I think they'd be okay with this if it began in July sometime. And uh, you would think in the, in the middle, if it begins in the mi- middle of July or even the beginning of July, we're going to be talking about fewer than 100 games. But uh, their goal is to play as many as possible. Uh, the hope, the number I heard, the hope is 140. I don't think you can play 35, 40 doubleheaders, yeah. but they're going to play some doubleheaders. They're not going to be as many off days. And they'll probably be playing into November. And I could see World Series at a neutral site with a dome or warm weather or something along those lines. So there's a lot of consideration. There's even a consideration to play games with with no fans, which would be weird. But the the TV money is about two-thirds to three-quarters of the money. So uh, you'd love to give the fans the opportunity to be out there. And hopefully, once they get going, uh, we're past this. I know we're all very hopeful of this. But uh, there is that possibility that they would end up playing games without fans, too. I think if, if we can find a positive when this is all said and done, John, I think the the intensity in which guys will be playing the game of baseball will be something I don't think we've seen in a long time because uh, – and I think that's across the board in all sports that have been shut down. Is I mean, you get something taken away from you, uh, it, it gives you a different perspective going out there. Uh, so it looks like June is probably a, a, a bit of a stretch. July more likely, hopefully, if everything um, – kind of kind of settles down at a point yeah, where we can start. I'm with you. I'm with you there. I think July is more realistic. I, I agree with you, Tony. Now I, I just can't help but think about the players in terms of how difficult it is probably to to get prepared for this season, right? I mean, generally speaking, when the season ends in, in you know, for most teams, September, for others, you know, later on in October, uh, you still have a, de- a definite start time to when the next season is going to go. So you can plan out. Most guys uh, start their workouts mid-November and start getting onto the field in December, and you kind of build up to spring training. I, w- I would imagine it's pretty difficult right now because you really don't know. Pitchers don't want to be building up too soon right now because they don't know when they're going to be back out. I've, I've heard Bud Black mention Virtually, he wants his players in off-season mode. Uh, it just seems like it's a difficult, really, task in front of the players and trying to figure out when they need to start getting ready. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Tony. It's a very difficult situation physically, mentally, and every other way for everybody in our country, and the players are included in that. Uh, John, uh, MLB writers have been listing uh, the best players, games, uh, things of that nature. We're going to get into that. Before we do, though, I, I want to uh, tease. Next week, uh, we're going to have Yankees manager uh, Aaron Boone, the savage man himself, will join us. So hopefully we can sit down and, and pick his brain a little bit. But uh, on back to the, to the best players. You, you've been covering this game for, for some time, John. Uh, who, who's one of the best players you've been able to cover? Well, I, I want to pick one best player, and I'll give you my runners-up. But uh, I did cover the Angels uh, in the 80s um, a long time ago, and I covered the New York scene uh, starting in 1990. And so uh, I w- I'm going to say Derek Jeter. Uh, I didn't understand why somebody didn't vote for him for the Hall of Fame. Uh, just an incredible career. So 
that's my guy uh, that I would pick. Obviously, A-Rod and Piazza were amazing players, uh, obvious, in, incredible players. But uh, for the best career, uh, no flaws, I'm going to go Derek Jeter. The best player for myself that I've ever played with on the same team is probably Prince Fielder. Uh, I saw him put a team, put our team on his back for a good month span uh, and get us into a playoffs. As far as playing against, I think the best player I've ever played against was Barry Bonds. I mean, it's it, a good it player. Just, <laughs> I, mean, I can I, argue I, I with a player. There was a lot of controversy behind Barry, but I, I've watched him from a kid all the way to being on the same field with him. And I just, don't see a better hitter uh, and earlier on his career, a better all around player than, than he was. Um, how about, how about favorite player to cover? Well, you know, I, my favorite player to cover and I covered him with the angels and with the Yankees and now he's with the Mets. So I covered him all over the place and that's Chili Davis. I just think he has mm. an incredible personality with a, an amazing sense of humor, a uh, great way to relate to everybody, the players and everybody else. And, uh, that's my favorite. I did love uh, covering Greg Cattaray. He would say anything in the interviews and was briefly an announcer, which I wasn't surprised about with the A's. And uh, so he gave uh, great quotes and was uh, honest 100% of the time. But uh, my all-time favorite is Chili Davis. I, 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 did, I haven't been covering enough guy covering long enough to, to pick a favorite <laughs> person to cover. But uh, one of my favorite teammates was John Garland. Um, he was he was just he was different. I mean, he he had a a swag about him when on days he was pitching, he kind of, uh, I saw him take a lot of young guys under his wing. He was just a stand up dude. One of my favorite teammates. I could have put Prince Fielder in there, but, uh, I'd be cheating. Cause that's like one of my <laughs> closest, closest friends. So I, I'd say John Garland, uh, let's, let's, let's go to a uh, favorite city, favorite city to go to. Well, mine is Chicago. I went to college yeah. in Chicago and, uh, it's a, a wonderful town. I think everybody who visits there loves Chicago, especially in the summer. Now, I when I was in school, I was there in the winter. It wasn't quite as lovely, but uh, uh, in, in the summer, there's no better city in the country than Chicago. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with you on this one, John. Chicago was by far one of my favorite cities uh, to go and, and play and just be in. Um, I'm a foodie. Chicago has a lot of good food uh, out that way. Uh, you know, playing in Milwaukee, generally, I felt like we opened up in Chicago every year. So I got a taste of how cold it can be in Chicago, but I also got a taste of how beautiful it can be during that summertime when Ivy is, is bloomed and, and nice and green. Uh, how about favorite stadium? Favorite stadium, you know, it's probably nostalgic for me because, again, I went to college at Northwestern there is is, is Wrigley. Uh, I know it's uh, – uh, you know, right one of the older ones, they fixed it up. Uh, but uh, even before it was fixed up, uh, I'd pick it. And the newer stadiums, uh, boy, the San Francisco Stadium, I can't keep up with the name. They've changed it so many times. San Francisco <laughs> yeah. is fantastic. San Park Diego. now, I believe it is. Uh, well, you're ahead of me on that story. San Francisco, San Diego, and Pittsburgh. And I like the Met Stadium, City Field as well. But my favorite is Wrigley. You know, I look at, at stadiums uh, from a hitter standpoint, and one of my favorite places to hit, I only got to go there once, was Target Field. I just felt like I saw the baseball in, in, in HD. It was as clear as can be. I also enjoyed hitting in, 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 in the old Turner Field. It felt like with all the lights kind of behind the hitter, not very many lights in the outfield. It was dark in the outfield, but for a hitter, I don't know if, if you could have yeah. a better sight line 
to swing out of baseball. Uh, interesting, interesting perspective you have there. Uh, the, the Twins hitters probably agree with you based on what they did last year. Right. With Donaldson this year, and you know, hopefully we play. It uh, could be something uh, uh, for the Twins. Coming up next, John and I will get to talk to Dave Stewart, former Major League pitcher. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about baseball and, and a little about his experience with COVID-19. All right, it's my pleasure to bring in our guest uh, for this week, a true renaissance man. I said that two weeks ago about uh, Dusty Baker, and it's true of this <laughs> fellow as well. Uh, he's been an agent, a general manager, a pitching coach, an all-star pitcher, three-time World Series champion, uh, won 20 games four straight years. No one's going to even win uh, 20 games two straight years anymore, but to do it four straight years. And in those years, averaged 266-plus innings and 11 complete games per year. Incredible. Uh, he's an incredible guy. I think uh, Tony Larusa once said that uh, Dave Stewart is uh, the finest man that he knows. And uh, I would say... Uh, he's not far off. Dave Stewart is a terrific gentleman. Uh, one of my favorites in the game. He's not my favorite because of course his wife, Lonnie is my personal favorite, but, uh, he's definitely in the running for number two. Uh, so it's my pleasure to bring in, uh, Dave Stewart. Welcome. And, uh, Tony Gwynn and I will be ans asking you some questions about everything. And as, as you know, it's going to go beyond baseball at this point, cause we're in a, a very, very tough time in this country with the coronavirus pandemic taking over and uh, Dave Stewart, not only a great guest for the baseball, but also because uh, he actually had a bit of a scare uh, with the coronavirus and uh, was one of the people who needed to be tested. Thankfully, he tested negative. He is okay, uh, but still dealing with a cough. And uh, we're all thrilled that he's tested negative, uh, but had quite a long wait. So there's uh, great relevancy to having Stu on uh, at the moment. So welcome in Dave. Thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, good to have. Good to be on, and good to be talking to you both. Stu, I got to ask you. I I read it when in the Athletic. Uh, Zach Buchanan wrote about your ordeal, and uh, it seemed quite harrowing. Uh, I think you were in Mexico uh, when you started to feel a cough. Uh, could you tell us? I know it might take a little while to go through it a bit, but. Uh, uh, tell us exactly what happened, how you got back to the United States, and uh, how you got tested, and uh, all that. Uh, it seemed uh, quite scary to me, but I know you, you talked to some reporters in the interim uh, while you were still waiting for the test, and uh, you know, you were your same uh, tough self. I know I would have been uh, uh, quite nervous. Uh, how did you deal with it all? Well, yeah, I mean, it did start um, in Mexico. Um, I started to feel a little sick. And I was down uh, uh, with Monclova baseball team, last year's uh, Mexican League champions. And uh, I started to feel a little sick down there. Um, I actually was hesitant to get on the plane mm. because I had started to cough and sneeze. Um, but I was in a, you know, peculiar situation because they were talking about possibly closing flights down coming into California. And so um, I uh, booked a flight for the Tuesday. But in the meantime, a close friend of mine here in the San Diego area, uh, Jim Breed, is a doctor over at uh, Palomar Pomerado Hospital. And uh, it was uh, suggested to me by Lonnie um, to call him and find out what the process is for testing. Um, because uh, 
I have compromised lungs. I've had pneumonia a couple of times, three times now. And I also have asthma. And uh, then with the with the cough and and a little bit of a fever, um, which I guess are symptoms, um, I decided to call him. And once I spoke to him, he said that over at Palomar Pomerado, they're doing testing 24-7. Um, and you just, whatever time you get in, just go straight from the airport there. Um, and if you know Lonnie, um, <laughs> that was the perfect scenario for her. Um, Miss Safety, I mean, and she is the Board of Health. <laughs> uh, picks me up at the. She picks me up at the airport. Uh, one of her friends drove her to the airport. Um, I'm in a separate car from her, driving to uh, Pomerado. I got out, and as 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 things would happen, um, I had, you know, I was just in a coughing fit. They immediately took me um, into the tent, um, gave me a, a face mask, uh, went into the tent, and uh, they performed the testing. Now, what I found out is that, um, because I'm, I'm hearing a lot of people are wanting to be tested, um, what I found out is that, at least at this, at this specific facility, um, they're requesting that you have symptoms uh, to be tested, um, which I guess I, I did that in flying colors because I wasn't even out, out of my car two minutes and I was already in it. Um, so they did the testing. They swabbed uh, one for flu, one for the virus, uh, temperature, blood pressure, uh, chest x-rays, did all of that. Um, it was about a three-hour process. Oh. And then uh, sent and then sent me home and said uh, quarantine yourself until you get your results back. And so um, from that point, I went um, here to my house. Um, and uh, there's a room that I like downstairs that I that I had been in, or I actually I've still been in for the last today's day. Um, and the only reason now, I mean, I, I test my test came back. Uh, negative yesterday, um, but mm, I'm still sick, um, and I have a guy have um, you know my family here in the house, and so I mean whatever this is that I have, whether it's a cold or well, I tested negative for for the flu, so this has to be a cold. And I still don't want to don't want to spread it around here in the house, so I'm I'm going to be here in this room until at least I get past this because. Um, you know, obviously, if you get a get a cold, that also breaks your immune system down, which opens the door for the virus. So um, this is better to play safe than sorry. Dave, talk a little bit about that test because, you know, different stories are different things. Was, was the test difficult? Talk about your experience going through the actual test. The actual test, in my opinion was not difficult at all. Um, literally two swabs uh, in, in each nostril, uh, which that's not pleasant. Um, right. And then um, you sit there, you do your, uh, you do your uh, blood pressure. And then the next part of it for me was just a uh, chest X-ray. Then I went in uh, for the, the, the longest part of the process is waiting for 
was waiting for the flu result because you don't get the actual, shoot, I didn't get the actual uh, negative result until yesterday, and that was a week later. So Mm. it wasn't tedious at all. The the worst part of it is trying to figure out what you're going to do while you're waiting for the results to come back from your chest X-ray and and from your uh, flu, um, your flu swab. Stu, uh, we've been watching the news nonstop. This is obviously a, a very, very bad and big story in, in, in our country and around the world as well. Pandemic, just terrible. Uh, what we hear, we, what we've seen is that the people are suggesting it takes three, four days sometimes for the result. Uh, some people are saying it'll take less time. Uh, yet you waited a week. Uh, th- did they tell you it was going to take a week? And uh, were you surprised? And and is that just torture for you to wait for a week to find out whether you have this virus or not? Um, when I left the hospital, they said it would be three to four days. Um, so that would have put me at Friday or Saturday. Um, but then after making a few phone calls, um, and it, it's like everybody, and that's why we're 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 tipping our caps to the medical teams that are out there trying to make this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Pomerado uh, was not equipped for the amount of testing that they've they've had to do, um, and so um, they've had to change their phone systems um, to try to accommodate the amount of people that are coming in to get tested and the amount of calls that they have to make once they get the results. And so though it was not a happy process for me, um, initially, you know, being in this room for, for seven days before I got a phone call. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's also understandable. Um, very understandable that, uh, that, you know, until you've gone through the process, you know, or, or I guess the saying is, you don't know what you don't know. And so um, I, I would imagine that this is a first for Pomerado Palomar Hospital. Um, and they weren't equipped for what they're going through, and they're making adjustments as they go. Davis, let's change gears a little bit because you, you've uh, one of the one of the folks that's been able to wear many different hats in, in, in the game of baseball. And right now, being with such an unusual time, um, uh, really around the world, but especially in the United States and in the game of baseball, um, what are what is your advice to to your players? Because you, you know you you have players now uh, that you represent. What is your advice uh, to the players and, and the league uh, currently trying to to navigate what's going on? Well, I mean. The, the toughest part of, of, of all of this is is the mental aspect of it. And fortunately, in my opinion, that's the the, the one thing that you can control. Mm, I think yeah. if you keep yourself mentally prepared to do your job, um, you know, you, you've got different ways that you can condition yourself. Granted, you may not be able to get out and, and, and run the fields and, you know, do your base, your base running or do your, do your bullpens and things like that. But you can still keep yourself physically ready to play the game. Um, and the way you do that is by keeping yourself mentally ready to play the game, uh, stay on top of it mentally. I think, uh, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah, I think that it seemed like 
for sure the players are going to be out for several more weeks. Uh, they've gone over the CDC recommendations and they said eight weeks from the point where uh, baseball was shut down. So um, does spring training have to start again? What would you do? I saw on the internet, Sonny Gray throwing to a backstop by one of those contraptions where the ball bounces back to you that we had as kids. And, uh, you know, so he was social, uh, di- socially distant while practicing pitching. Um, I mean, do you think the spring training has to start again? I mean, what do you hear? I'm, I'm hearing that there might only be a two or three week spring training and uh, the pitchers just won't be built up and we'll have to start with expanded rosters, which I think is probably the way to go. But where do you, where do you see this going in terms of uh, the spring training? Uh, the, uh, are we starting again? Is that, is that what we have to do with spring training? You know, I, I had a I had a chance to uh, come in as a guest coach in the A's spring training uh, this year, uh, pitchers and catchers. And those guys, they came in ready and prepared to act. They were throwing live BPs after their second bullpen. The problem here with pitchers especially is that in most cases, there's nobody to throw to to keep your arm in shape to, you know, do bullpens. And then there may be some guys out there that can do bullpens for you. But, shoot, Tony, I think that you've coached coached travel teams before, and there are a couple of facilities here in the area. It's tough to get guys to come out and catch bullpens. Um, It's a tough thing to do. So I think the biggest biggest part of this is that there's there's not – a lot of uh, guys that can be in one place to train properly to go into spring training again. And so, you know, if they're going to do it in two weeks, I think that's going to be difficult. And I think you may see the injury level raised this year. Um, If you do it in three weeks, you know, a lot of, a lot of players say three weeks, four weeks is about what you need. Um, I'm not too sure I would go less than three weeks. And three weeks, in my opinion, is pushing it. I think that four weeks would be the best case scenario um, for for spring training, and and then get yourself right in the games. I mean, I mean, Dave, if if, if you were playing right now, I mean, how would you handle it? Because virtually, uh, if there's enough time in between now and when the players get back out on the field you're virtually going to have to be building back up. How, how would you have handled it? You know, I would exhaust all options. Um, you know, if, for example, uh, if I've got a catcher in this area um, that can make himself available, um, you, although you socially, you have to be careful what you do, but if I can get a guy to come out and play catch with me, I'll play some long toss, keep my arm loose, and go through the process of the long toss, <clears throat> excuse me, and then get myself back on the mound and do some pins, that would be the best case scenario for me. Um, mm. Here at my house, I have a workout facility. I've got a gym. I've got weights. I've got dumbbells and and jump rope and and all the stuff that you need here in my house the the toughest part is trying to find a mate to get out to a field um to play long toss with you and do bullpens um and that that's what i would exhaust i would exhaust those options to find 
somebody that'll get out and, and play catch with me. Little different situations that you went through with the two strikes. Uh, obviously, uh, that was at the time uh, very concerning, uh, not as traumatic as what this country is going through right now. But you came in, we had the 81 strike, and at the tail end of your career, we had the 94 and 95 uh, work stoppage. Um, what are your recollections of that? I, I, I saw, I went and did a little research, and I saw that you uh, took a job working uh, at a factory, I believe, in, in 81 while you were out. You were just starting out, so you weren't, yeah. uh, you were not, a, you were probably struggling to get by at that point. So what are your recollections of that? And also the 94, 95 yeah. strike, I, I know that was at the tail end of your career, but I, I think that took a lot out of a lot of players because uh, of the way the fan reaction was during that strike. In 81, um, it was officially my rookie year, um, and I did. I took a job at a, at a fastener shop. It's called Smith Fasteners, um, and I worked there um, in the daytime because, I mean, people don't know this, but in, in 1981, the minimum salary was 21 five. Mm-hmm. And and you're living in Los Angeles, so uh, that's a big difference. Twenty-one five. That's not even twenty-one five over a six-month <laughs> period of time. Um, and the the workout part of it, because that was a sixty-day strike. The workout part of it for me, um, which you know, I was really really fortunate. A close friend of mine, and and he's now deceased, but Bobby Castillo was my workout buddy at the time. Um, and Bobo and I would get out and we'd play catch. And uh, Mike Socia was also in the area um, and Socia would catch pins for. So I didn't have a problem keeping my arm in shape and, and doing the things I needed to do at that time for the 60-day strike. In 1994, um, John, you said that that was a totally different situation. Um, I'm 38 turning 39, I believe, or 39 turning 40. And it is the end of my career. It's going towards the end of my, of my career. And um, I don't know that it was so much, the, it was so much, um, I guess the best way to put it is spiritually, once we went on strike, we didn't have a World Series or an All-Star game. Um I kind of lost the feeling for the game of baseball. Mm. Although I did try to make a return. Um, We had the Homestead uh, free agent camp, which I got signed out of there and eventually signed back to Oakland. Uh, But I don't think spiritually I ever felt good that season. I just wasn't into baseball anymore. Um, And so um, once we shut down, which that was a much longer strike than 81. Um, once we shut down, I shut it down. There was indecision going into the 95 season. Um, we didn't know what we were going to do, and everything was kind of last minute. And then all of a sudden, we've got a homestead uh, camp for free agents. And um, so I just never got into that. I never got into the season. Dave, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your transition from player to pitching coach, pitching coach, to agent, agent to the front office. Let's start with from player to pitching coach, because I remember being in the locker room as a 16-year-old kid in San Diego and how much command you had uh, of the rotation, which was a really good rotation. I mean, Kevin Brown, Andy Ashby, among others. 
talk about your transition going from from being a, a player to being a coach, especially at the big league level. Well, it was the the first. Yeah, I guess it would be technically the first coaching job I had. Um, when I when I transitioned out in 95 after I retired, and I did some office work for the 80s uh, before I came to the Padres and did some, I guess, instructionally coaching. Um, but what, that was the extent of coaching for me. And so mm-hmm. Kevin Powers, um, the general manager at that time, um, felt that... Uh, at that time, I was a special assistant for him because I left the I left the A's coming to the Padres as a special assistant to Kevin. And um, so in 97, I had been there a full season um, as a special assistant. And then in 98, um, we – I tough to think what Kevin was thinking, but um, we were on our way to Mexico and – it was it was late. It was October. Um, we Danny Worthen was our our pitching coach at the time that we had we had removed from the position, and we were on our way to Mexico. And I told Kevin, I said, "Well, we're getting kind of late, and we haven't interviewed one person." And Kevin told me, he says, "Stu, I, I already know who the guy is." <laughs> and I said, "I said really." He says, yeah. He says, I, I know who the guy is. I haven't talked to him about it yet, but I think he'd be perfect for the position. And, uh, you know, probably now is as good a time to have a conversation with him. I said, well, who is the guy? He said, you're the guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I told Kevin, I said, I, I, I've, never met, I've never coached before in my life. And he said, Stu, your your presence, um, how you relate to the players. Yeah. Um, he said, you walk into the door with something that nobody that I can think of will walk into the door with. And he said, I think that you'd be perfect for it. And I uh, refused uh, that whole trip. He was on me the whole trip, which it was a four-day trip. And then on the flight back, um, I accepted the position. And my, like I said, my, my thought was, my biggest fear was I, I didn't know about coaching. Um, Kevin made it seem easy. He, he made it seem easy. And the way he spoke about it, it seemed easy. You know, he just said, basically, be yourself. I had Greg Booker in, in the bullpen. And he said, Book will help you with the scheduling, the spring training stuff. He'll help you with that. Um, he'll help you with all of the stuff that you have to do during the course of the year. He said, what I'd like you to focus on is just transforming this pitching staff into the kind of pitcher that you were. Mm. And I said, oh, I don't know that I can do that. Um, but what I can do is I told him Dave Duncan is one of the best that I've ever been with. And what I'll do is everything that I learned through Dave Duncan, I'll bring to this pitching staff and we'll see how it goes. And I got to be honest, I was lucky. Um, He went out um, immediately and got Kevin Brown. At the time I took the job, Kevin Brown wasn't a part of our staff. We got Kevin Brown and 
know, we had Joey Hamilton and Andy Ashby mm-hmm. and Sterling Hitchcock. I mean, you know, Trevor was on the back end. So, I mean, we had the makings of, of a good pitching staff. Um, both with the manager, um, which made it that much better um, to, to try to figure out what we were going to do during the course of the game, moves. Um, you know, our, our middle relief area probably wasn't the stronger, but strongest, but we made it work. You know, we had Donnie Wall, who was a swing guy for us, Carlos Reyes. Uh, Mark Langston was a swing guy for us to the, in, in and out of the rotation. You know, and, and so, um, God, Dan Maselli, I mean, yeah. we made it work, and those guys all pitched well. They 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 pitched with their hearts on their, on their shoulders. Um, anything that I could ask them to do, they did. Uh, Trevor Hoffman was the perfect messenger um, for the things that I couldn't say to the players. Trevor was the perfect messenger for me to say it to the players have them understand it at their level. Um, and so, I mean, you couldn't ask for a better situation. Had a great guy at the front of the rotation, um, had Trevor at the back end, um, and I had a great manager to work with and learn from. Well, you, you're very modest. That was uh, quite a initiation as a coach to uh, a team to the World Series. Obviously, ran to a buzzsaw in the 98 Yankees, one of the best teams uh, of our lifetimes, but uh, fantastic job there. And that would have actually been the fourth World Series ring uh, with four different teams. Uh, our producer, Joey Gelman, looked it up, and you won World Series with three different teams, uh, the, the Dodgers, the uh, Jays, and the A's. And uh, he found that uh, Jack, two other right-handers, Jack Morris and John Lackey, also did won World Series rings uh, with three different teams. So uh, you almost had a fourth there. Fantastic. I'm glad you mentioned Kevin Towers, who's a pitching savant. Uh, and Dave Duncan uh, is probably your favorite coach. And I did want to ask you one more question about your career. Uh, you had never won more than 10 games. You had a nice, solid career going. Went back and you signed with your hometown team, uh, the Oakland A's. And Duncan was there, the pitching coach. I assume that's your probably your, your favorite uh, coach, uh, as you mentioned him, but uh, can you tell us how you transformed from a a nice major leaguer to a star and someone who had uh, you had a first good year, a good first year, and then you won twenty games those four straight years? How exactly did you do that? What did Duncan say something to you, especially uh, to lead you to become that star? Oh, a lot of things had to happen, um, John and, and Tony. A lot of things had to happen. One, um, and I believe this forever, is is opportunity. Um, if if the opportunity is given to you, the second part of it is you have to be ready for it. Um, you know, I had been with the Dodgers, and 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 you know, people will will say whatever they want to about my career with the Dodgers, but I thought that my career with the Dodgers was a good one. Um, I thought that the numbers said it. I just never had the opportunity to be a consistent starter um, since the minor leagues with them. Um, I got to Texas and it was pretty much the same song and dance. Um, and uh, Philadelphia was just a, a short period of time and um, and I was released from there. So in my mind, I was just hoping that I got another opportunity to to play, first of all, after being released. 
And then the second part of it, which is the toughest thing, is to remain confident in your ability uh, and the things that you're capable of doing if a door is open for you. Um, I remain confident in who I was and what I was capable of doing if given the proper situation. And then um, even when I first signed with Oakland, it's a crazy story, and I'll tell you guys this one because I just heard this uh, from Sandy Allison for the first time uh, this year. The way I got signed to the A's um, was this. Um, I did a workout in Baltimore, which Baltimore even Baltimore refused to even have somebody come and look. Um, I did that workout, and in that workout, Jackie Moore and Wes Stock, uh, the manager and pitching coach at that time, told Sandy that my workout wasn't good and that um, they wouldn't sign me. Hmm. And so Sandy spoke back to my agent, um, who's San Diego-based, Tony Atanasio. And when they spoke to Tony, when he spoke to Tony, he told Tony, our guys don't like him, we're not going to sign him. And in the meantime, Sandy asked Tony, uh, so what other options do you have? And he said, well, we wanted to sign him uh, in the Bay. It might be new life for him at home. But we've got an opportunity with Detroit. We've got an opportunity with Toronto and with the White Sox. And he says, Detroit, Sandy says, Detroit. He says, so Bill Joy likes this guy? And Tony told him, yeah, he likes him a lot. And so uh, Sandy says, let me call you back. He hangs up the phone, calls Tony back in 10 minutes. He says, he says, I'm not paying attention to what those guys say down there. If Bill Joy likes him, I'm signing him. Mm. So that's that's how I ended up signing with the A's. Uh, thank you, Bill Joy. God rest his soul. Um, mm. <laughs> but what's crazy is even though I got signed there, once I got to the big leagues, I still didn't get an opportunity to pitch very much. And shoot, Tony, you know when you've been in a game and you're force-fed to a coaching staff, they're going to find every way they can to bury you. Yes, yes, sir. And, and and that's what happened. So I didn't really get an opportunity to pitch until Dave Duncan and Tony La Russa came. Uh, that was mid-year. Mm. Um, and once they came in, um, it changed the whole complexion of everything for me. And I, I'm sorry to make a long story, uh, short, or long story, make this a long story, but... Um, once Dave Duncan and Tony got here, the first thing that happened that had never happened for me before was Tony says, Hey, look, look at the rotation um, of the guys that we have here. We think you're going to give us our best chance to win every fifth day. Mm. So you're going to start my first game in Boston. And the guy you're going to pitch against in Boston is Roger Clemens. And he says, he's got some kind of streak that's going on. So it's going to be a Monday night game of the week. Does any of that bother you? And I go, I'm just looking for an opportunity. I don't really care who's on the other side of my own. Just give me the ball. <laughs> Boom. So I end up uh, winning that game. I pitched seven innings. Um, end up winning that game. Um, and during the course of that game, when I was in Texas, I was scolded by Doug Rader to never use my forkball ever again. Mm. And so I didn't for the years I was in Texas. 
I broke it out that night, and Doug and uh, Dave Duncan after that start said, "What was that? What was that off-speed pitch that you were throwing?" I said, "It's a fork ball that um, I've had." He he says, "Well, you need to you need to use that on a regular." Mm-hmm. I started using that pitch, so now the fork ball is in place. Um, I've always been a guy that. Um, was real proud of my fastball and I had a so-so breaking ball. Um, but getting back to Dunk, Dunk gave me the ability to put my talent and my mental on the same level. I was always a guy that was talent way above mental. Mm. And Dunk gave me the opportunity to balance the scale. And, um, that, in my opinion, is what would change my career. Wow, very interesting. Well, I'm not surprised you like the challenge of uh, Roger Clemens on a uh, nationally televised game. 8-0 lifetime in the LCS, two-time LCS MVP. Just an incredible career and a renaissance man who has done it all in the game and more importantly right now is very, is healthy on his way to health. I know you still have a cough. Thank God you tested negative and uh, you're back in the United States and you'll on your road to recovery. So it's been our pleasure, Stu. It's been fantastic having you on and uh, best of luck to you. Thank you, Stu. Hey, man. Thanks very much. Tony, shoot, you my neighbor, man. I never see you. (laughs) (laughs) It's always always good to, to talk with you, as you know, man. And please keep me posted on what your daughter's doing once. We get back into the tennis season. Let me know what she's doing, please. I will do. I will do so. All right, you guys do. Take care. Uh, That's going to do it for for this episode of Big Time Baseball. Uh, We appreciate you guys listening. This is presented by Radio.com Sports. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll talk to you next week again. We'll have Aaron Boone. You guys have a, a good week, and let's all stay safe. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.